So, like I said, the reactor is pretty old. So it was commissioned in 1958, and it was really commissioned because of a, a scientist whose name was Glenn Seaborg. A few weeks ago, I made a trip to Oak Ridge National Laboratory. It's in eastern Tennessee, nestled in beautiful green hills and valleys down a long road flanked by forests. Some of the things we're working on will not occur during my career. How does that make you feel? It feels great. This is Alan Eisenhower. He's a former nuclear submarine officer and now helps direct nuclear science research at the lab. The research done here helped develop the atomic bomb. And its scientists are still at it today, working toward a vision that's a little bit hard to imagine right now. You've probably heard the story, the cathedral building story before. It's about two workers laying brick on a cathedral that they'll never see completed in their lifetimes. It's hard, repetitive work. But one of them is always cheerful, saying that one day, thousands, even millions of people will use what he's building today. And he could get the vision for what, it, even though he knew he'd never see it, he knew what he was enabling for the future. Alan and his peers have to think like this, because what they're working on will most likely never be fully realized in their careers, even in their lifetimes. And when their cathedral is finally completed, it will reshape the global economy and transform the power dynamic between countries. And that is not an understatement. These scientists are working on a new source for electricity. They're trying to achieve nuclear fusion, essentially recreating the sun on Earth. Hi, I'm Aki Ito. And I'm Jane Cow. And this week on Decrypted, we're exploring just how close we are to realizing the silver bullet for clean, cheap, abundant energy. While nuclear power plants currently work by splitting atoms apart, this is called nuclear fission, this other type of nuclear energy works by smashing particles together, and that is called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion has been a particularly hard nut to crack. After decades of research, scientists are still years away from building a commercially viable power plant. But scientists say they're on the edge of a major breakthrough. If they can find a way to make a nuclear fusion reaction take place in a sustainable, controlled environment, the world's energy needs would be taken care of, possibly forever. Stay with us. Okay, let's, uh, we're all signed in. I do have a, we do have a couple of rules. <clears throat> um, actually, I think we can take photos today, so if you wanted to take a picture or something, Back at Oak Ridge National Lab, I caught up with Ned Sautoff, who oversees a big fusion project. This, this is not just, you know, it's 50% more efficient. You know, this is 10 million times more efficient, okay? So if we could make it work, it would change the world. Ned has piercing gray-blue eyes and a mop of floppy silver-white hair. I spent almost three hours with him and felt like we could have talked for 20 more. Ned's in his 60s and has been working on nuclear fusion since the 1970s. He's still an evangelist when it comes to the potential that this technology has to solve the world's ever-growing energy needs. 
In 2016, the world used more than 30 billion barrels of oil. And more than 85% of energy used for things like powering homes came from fossil fuels, which are coal, oil, and natural gas. Not only are these finite resources, but the need for countries to maintain a steady supply has sparked recessions, riots, and even wars around the world. You tell that goddamn governor he's going to police this goddamn gasoline situation. I will not take the blame for this thing. I will not take the crap and the harassment from these customers. Now let him police it or stop selling gas. Anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more Americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps. Ned himself experienced the turmoil that followed the energy crises of the 1970s. I grew up in the mid-70s when they had gas lines because of the oil embargo. If we can solve this challenging scientific problem, we can solve the world's energy problem forever. That's how Ned turned to nuclear fusion. And decades later, he's still a true believer. So you go by a typical power plant. Did you know that to keep it powered in coal takes roughly 90 railroad cars of coal every day? To produce the same energy by fusion. You ready? Three pounds of tritium and two pounds of deuterium. That's a game changer. Tritium, deuterium, these are all parts of nuclear fusion that we'll explain in just a moment. For now, what Ned's trying to say is that if scientists can make nuclear fusion work, we'll have found a source of energy that comes with no carbon emissions, much less radioactive waste than the nuclear reactors we have today, and, most importantly, an almost unlimited supply of raw materials that can be accessed basically anywhere. Okay, so let's explain how it works. First, a quick review of the periodic table. Remember that from high school chemistry? The first element is hydrogen. It's the lightest, simplest element in the universe, with one proton, one electron, and usually one neutron. Hydrogen is also the most abundant element in the universe, so unlike crude oil, we won't be running out of it anytime soon. Protons have a positive charge, electrons a corresponding negative charge, and neutrons are, well, neutral. Protons and neutrons usually sit together in the center of an atom, while electrons fly around orbiting them. I mean, as you know, the sun, 93 million miles away, produces power by transforming hydrogen into helium. Okay? Well, we want to do the same thing down here on Earth. Nuclear fusion occurs naturally in stars, including our own sun, where hydrogen atoms are placed under extreme heat and pressure. 274,000 times hotter than the human body, and pressure that's like being crushed under a mountain. These conditions allow something extraordinary to happen. Normally, atoms would never come close enough to fuse together. Right, but under the intense conditions at the center of the sun, the atomic structure of the hydrogen starts to break down. The gas turns into something called plasma, which enables the particles to move faster and more freely. Because the positive particles, which are the nuclei, things like deuterium and tritium, which normally repel each other because they're both positive, can now get close enough together, like 
10 to the minus 12 centimeters, that's a millionth of a millionth of a centimeter together, suddenly they stick. Deuterium and tritium, by the way, are what's known as heavy hydrogen, basically hydrogen with extra neutrons. They're the raw materials used in fusion reactions and can be sucked out of seawater or produced in nuclear reactors. And then they form this compound nucleus for a very, very short period of time, and then they break apart. When that happens, a whole lot of energy is released, mostly carried by the extra neutrons. It's super hot, moving super quickly. That energy is what we'd harness to make electricity. So it's the nuclear fusion reactions happening inside the sun that make it so hot. But those kinds of extreme conditions don't exist anywhere on the surface of the Earth. Not even inside the molten lava of a volcano. The sun's huge mass creates a really strong gravitational force that keeps the hot hydrogen from escaping. The sun's gravity is 28 times stronger than the Earth's. That means if you weighed 100 pounds, you'd feel like you weighed 2,800 pounds on the sun. This is a huge challenge for scientists. How do you build a power plant that can resist the pressure and the heat the reactor needs for these fusions to start taking place? On Earth, it needs to be more than 100 million degrees Celsius inside the reactor for fusion to occur. Which is easier said than done. Plasma is a very complex nonlinear system. And then we had to learn how to understand it and how how to control it. And so it took us a few decades to really understand how do you control the plasma. One of the most extensively researched ways is using huge and powerful magnets laid out in an arrangement called a tokamak. Imagine this. The hydrogen plasma, that's the super hot gas, is contained within electromagnetic coils shaped like a donut. More magnets surround the donut to give more control. The leading configuration, the best demonstrated, the one that has the most scientific and engineering basis is the tokamak. To give you one example, the biggest fusion device functioning in Europe right now, known as the JET, has a magnetic field 10,000 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. The larger the tokamak, the more powerful the magnetic fields, the easier it is to get a fusion reaction going. In the last 60 plus years, the world has built more than 200 of these machines, 45 or so that are still functioning. But no experiment has been able to sustain a fusion reaction long enough to produce more energy than was required to get it going, which is needed if we ever want to use fusion to generate electricity. The exciting thing, though, with how far science has progressed and with today's technology, we're on the cusp of making it happen. The scientific principles have been demonstrated, and it's a matter now of raising it to industrial scale. This is reality. But of course, moving this technology out of the lab and raising it to an industrial scale involves huge challenges. What those are and how the industry could overcome them is coming up next. The story really starts almost 80 years ago. In the early 1940s, 
Oak Ridge was a secret town owned and operated by the U.S. government. It was a big part of the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project was created in the middle of World War II to develop the ability to use nuclear fission as a weapon. Okay, 1939. Germans discover fission, right? We're worried about this. That's Allison Hummel, who took me on a tour of the historical sites at the Oak Ridge Lab. Back in 1939, scientists feared what the Germans could do with the technology to split atoms. They even convinced a reluctant star colleague to write a letter to the president about the possibility fission reactions posed. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of this type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by a boat and exploded into port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. Yours very truly, Albert Einstein. By the end of the war, there were 85,000 people working here, um, and that was from pretty much zero population in December of 1942. Their work was so secret that most of them didn't even know what they were working on. I have just returned from the White House where it has just been announced that the United States is now using an atomic bomb, the most powerful explosive yet Then developed. the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, and the residents finally learned the truth of what they were doing. Oak Ridge had actually delivered the enriched uranium used in the first bomb. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. After the war, the facilities eventually became one part civilian research lab, which is today's Oak Ridge National Lab, and one part military operations. Today, Oak Ridge is home to a group of scientists managed by Ned, working on building the world's biggest tokamak, the magnetic donut reactor that we talked about earlier. They're the U.S. arm of a multi-billion dollar, multi-decade joint venture in nuclear fusion between seven entities in the world, including the U.S., European Union, China, and Russia. It's called the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, or ITER for short. This thing is expensive, estimated to cost tens of billions of dollars to complete. It's too much and too complex for any one country, so each of the seven participants has pledged to fund and build portions of it. There is ever-growing confidence that ITER, when operated, will achieve the plasma that we predict. But it won't be completed until 2025, if things go according to plan. That's when scientists are aiming to get the reactor up and running and forming its first fusion reactions. But what we're trying to focus on right right now is to have a plasma where we inject 50 million watts of power and we get out 500 million, million watts of fusion power. Most power plants that exist today work the same way that they did 100 years ago. You heat water to make steam, and the steam turns turbines, which generates electricity. The difference is in what kind of fuel you're using to heat the water. That fuel source, it can be coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear fission reactors, and hopefully one day, a nuclear fusion reactor. When that happens, scientists believe that we will have found the ultimate way to generate energy. Ned thinks that at this point, nuclear fusion is all but a sure thing. 
It will work. We just have to build it. And a lot of international scientists are pinning their hopes on the ITER project. While there are maybe faster and cheaper paths to fusion energy, Ned says that this is the least risky. ITER is on the high reliability but high cost end of the spectrum. Okay. But there's one huge problem. At this moment, the fusion program is limited by money. It suffers from the same same thing that all advanced energy research suffers. That advanced energy research is not a priority. Ned tells me that when you look at adjusted dollars, U.S. funding for fusion peaked in the late 70s and early 80s after the oil shocks. Well, I was working on on a series of devices. Uh, I was actually at that point running a a collaboration on a variety of devices around the world. And, and what we saw was that we had many, many ideas that we could not afford to follow up on. It doesn't help that most of us non-scientists don't really understand how nuclear technology works. Throughout history, there have been some major accidents involving nuclear reactor meltdowns. A year after these reactors at the Fukushima nuclear plant exploded in a triple meltdown, reporters were reminded this is still one of the most hazardous places on the planet. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged, and there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. Experts tonight say the cloud of radiation is now dissipating over the North Atlantic and poses no further threat to anyone. But as the Soviets treat an unknown number of casualties, there's no way to say how much lasting damage that cloud may have already caused. Dean Reynolds, ABC News, London. It's important to note that the big nuclear disasters like Fukushima or Chernobyl involved a different process altogether, where atoms are being split apart inside the reactor instead of being fused together. That's the difference between nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. Here's Alan again. There's a lot of hyperbole about it uh, that has played out over the years that uh, we have not uh, been effective at uh, at countering, which is unfortunate. The damage to public perception is hard to erase. And it doesn't help nuclear's case that the U.S. still has plenty of hydrocarbons, which is oil, gas, and coal. In 2008, the U.S. ITER project was hoping to get $160 million in funding for the following year. I was actually driving to Florida for Christmas vacation (laughs) and uh, pulled up in the driveway of my parents' house and I got a phone call and it was, uh, they just passed an appropriation for 10.6 instead of 160. (laughs) Ned got less than 10% of the funding that they had asked for. The team had to toss the original plan out the window. There was some restructuring. The main thing was to not spend all the money they had, or it was game over. So that particular year, the strategy was live to fight the battle the next year. (laughs) We knew we couldn't do what we intended to do that year, but... We had to try to preserve the capability to rebound. That was smack dab in the middle of the global financial crisis. Other countries also pulled back funding. 
Ned told me that set Eater's timeline back five years. In November of last year, Ned and his team presented a budget that laid out how much money they would need to complete Eater's construction and achieve the first fusion reaction in 2025. At this point, the U.S. has already spent about a billion dollars, with more than three billion dollars to go to see it through. For 2017, Ned requested a hundred million dollars. You know, we just got a 17 budget. They just passed the budget in April. Okay. And it was complicated. Essentially, they were given $50 million. But the Department of Energy has the option to add another $50 million. To date, we've not received the second 50. Okay, so, so we're positioning ourselves to survive at the 50 level. For fiscal year 2018, the situation is also dire. President Trump, who made fossil fuels, and especially coal, a focus of his administration, has only approved about half of what Ned has requested. And now we're being impacted because we're not getting the money. And so we are now struggling to try to stay with 2025. Getting us here has taken decades. Every element we just described took years of dedicated research to just understand, and then many more years to move past the theory and come up with actual experiment results. Just getting ITER up and running won't be enough to get us to the stage where we can use fusion to generate electricity. The real question is, in the next generation, in a real fusion reactor, what would you build it out of? And if you were to use the sorts of things we're using on ITER, it would turn to a powder, <laughs> you know. When Ned says it would turn into powder, he means that the materials that exist today can't handle the kinds of harsh conditions fusion requires over a long period of time. But a power plant that uses fusion will need to be running the reactions constantly and for many months at a time to make economic sense. You would chew up the material completely and suddenly, if you don't do anything about it, you know, you can reach the lifetime of such a material within uh, a few days to a week. That's Jürgen Rapp, a plasma physicist at Oak Ridge National Lab. He and Alan are working on a bunch of other things that will be necessary to make a commercial fusion power plant work. If you're going to have a, a successful power plant, it's more than just the plasma. You have to be able to fuel it. You have to be able to extract the heat from it. You have to have materials that can withstand that type of environment. Best way is to do start this development now instead of waiting until ITER has produced its burning plasma, and then we start only developing the materials. We know that we have to develop new materials. Innovating on these elements all require funding and even new facilities. But like Ned, they're also held back by money. Although we build more community behind it, is it enough? You know, under the budget constraints, I do not want to make a firm prediction because it's also out of my hands. We are ready. I would say we are ready. I hope so that... uh, The people in Washington are ready too. For now, all the uncertainty around funding, combined with all the false starts throughout history, has made most of these scientists hesitant to offer a timeline for when the fusion power plant will be a reality. I won't speculate on the exact time frame because many have and many have been wrong over and over again, right? 
Only Ned would entertain that question. Looking at Eater, if all goes to plan, he estimates that we might get a working fusion power plant around 2050. By which point, Ned would be 101 years old. I I truly hope. I mean, I I realize this that、uh, this endeavor to make fusion energy a reality、uh, takes many generations,、uh, and I'm not somebody who is discouraged by it.、Um, and some people make fun of that. Maybe it's because I come from Europe and I come from Cologne, and the Cologne Cathedral was built over 800 years, you know. So. <laughs> So you know, it is it is worthwhile to wait for it. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We want to know what you think of this episode. Record a voice message and send it to decrypted at bloomberg dot net. Also, you can find me on Twitter at Jingle Bells Cal, and I'm at Aki Ito Seven. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. This really helps more listeners find our show. This episode was produced by Pia Gakari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. Thanks to Nico Grant and Isabel Gottlieb for their help with the show. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcast. We'll see you next week.